pray with me, Father in heaven, even now I pray that uh, your spirit would work in us in such a way by your word to transform us. Father, we trust that, that when the scripture says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, that as you speak to us, stuff happens. And so, Father, I pray that you would work in us by your word to transform us, to conform us to the image of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to First Peter in chapter 1. First <clears throat> Peter chapter 1, I want to read again, and I say again because I read this passage last Sunday as well. First Peter chapter 1, verses, verse 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. First Peter... Even as I take my watch off and put it beside me, knowing how little it means to me, uh, I just want to tell you we'll be finished about 12.15, so just so you won't, you won't be surprised when I don't finish at 12.30. First Peter in chapter 1, uh, verse 22, hear the word of God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. The command for us is that we're to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's where we began last Sunday, that we're to love one another from a pure heart. As we work our way through First Peter, we come, this is the fourth command, you remember. He began by telling us who it is we are, that is what God has done for us, this great salvation that we have. We've been speaking about how we'll respond to that. We're to hope in the grace that's coming. We're to... And live holy lives, we're to live in the fear of God, and now he says we're to love. And of course, there's no real question about this notion of loving each other. Uh, it's a commandment of Jesus. He says that this is the test that non-Christians get to use on us. He said, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love each other. And so, so he says to the people of the world, watch Christians, and if they love each other, then they really do belong to me. They really are my disciples. If they don't, you can say they don't belong to me. Now, they may be wrong, but that's the test that's given. Uh, we know that in this command, that as we love each other, it shows, it means that we love the Father and the Son, that he dwells within us. Uh, it, no, it, it tells us that Jesus will manifest himself to us as we love each other. We realize that, uh, that by loving each other and through loving each other, that Christ abides with us and in us, that he hears our prayers that we bear fruit, and that we can have assurance that we've passed from death to life, the scripture says, if we love each other. So it's crucial, of course, that we love one another. Now, that doesn't mean we don't love other people, too, that we only love Christians, or it's this little exclusive little club. We love each other, but nobody else, because the scripture also commands us to love in general. For instance, in Galatians, uh, in chapter 6, in verse 10, uh, the apostle writes uh, this, he says, <clears throat> so then, as you have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
In other words, there's a, there's a special family love that we all experience, should experience, at least in the context of our own families. I can say I love my wife and children. You might say you love my wife and children, but we know there's a different quality there. And we understand that. And so when the scripture speaks of Christians loving Christians, then we're talking about something that's family, something that's community, something that we understand because of the nature of how we're structured in the context of our own families. And when he says you're to love others as well, we understand that as well. I might say I love your children, but, but it's unlikely I'm going to pay their tuition. Uh, that doesn't mean I don't love them. It just simply means... Well, okay, I don't love them that much. But uh, we understand that. We know that when there's an issue in the context of a family, we run to that without question. And yet, outside, we understand there are other structures, other ways that these things can be met as well and even through us. And so this love for Christians is a special love that we're to have for each other. It's a brotherly love uh, in the sense that we all belong to God. He's our Father. We've been adopted into His family. But all that is to say that this isn't necessarily easy. First of all, love in and of itself is not easy, not real love. Because the standard that God gives us that we're to have to love each other is to love as Christ has loved us, which means it's costly, which means it's sacrificial. That's the love with which Christ loved us. And the love with which Christ loved us was not dependent upon our being lovable, He loved us while we were yet sinners. And so that's the love to which we've been called. Uh, During the offering time, I always like to sneak in a sermon point, uh, as you know. But it is that passage from 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brothers. And again, I appreciate that. But the literalness of that, the chances of me having to die for you are fairly slim. It it seems like this sort of hypothetical that we can all smile and say, sure, I'd do that. And so then John goes on more particularly, and he simply says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, it closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? That is, if you've got it and they don't, don't close your heart to them. Now, there's all kinds of qualifiers here in terms of what's best for the other person and how much to give and whether to give and when to give and what's helpful and all that. Work through all those details, but the point is, where's your heart? What's your heart's desire in the context of that one with a need? Does it go out to them even to the point of of helping? You know, so many times I read during our offering time, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, about this church in Macedonia that was poor and afflicted and poverty plus affliction equaled for them great affection and generosity. Why? It was a matter of the heart. It's who they were. They couldn't keep themselves. The apostle says, they begged us to take. They entreated upon us to, to, to let them give because that's what was in their hearts. Who knows how much they had? But, but, but it was the matter of the heart and so that's the point here. And so John says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed uh, and in truth. You see, for us to really love for us to really be patient and kind and not envious and not arrogant and not boastful, to be humble and to put the needs of the other in front and, uh, of our own and to be compassionate and to spend our energies on the well-being of another even when we're not doing so well. It's a really love. It's a very difficult thing. We have to die to our own selfishness. We have to die to our own self-centeredness, you see, in order to love like that. 
And when you think about it and experience it, sometimes loving other Christians is more difficult emotionally in our experience than loving unbelievers. It's sort of like, you know, you know how easy it is to be nice some days at the office? I mean, people do stuff at the office and you just go, oh, that's okay. And you come home and dinner's not ready and you blow your stack. Why is it that we can be so nice to relative strangers and yet so unnice to relatives? Well... You know the old saying, you know, you, you can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your relatives. Um, we know the truth of that. You can pick your friends. There's some mutual interest. But with your relatives, sometimes you look around and you go, I don't, I don't know about this. But it can be difficult to love those you haven't chosen but have come into the family. I mean, we have very great differences. In the days of when this apostle wrote, Jews hated Gentiles, Gentiles hated Jews, but yet they still had to love each other. There was one uh, Jew in particular, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, you remember, who persecuted Christians, and when he became a Christian, they had to love him. So there would be people whose parents he may have had executed, who then were moved, caused, called, commanded to affectionately, joyfully love this one. Saul, Paul. And so it's a difficult thing to be thrown together to love. You know, sometimes I think it's difficult for us to love each other because our expectations are pretty high for each other. Because we expect each other to live like Jesus. And we don't expect ourselves to live like Jesus. But we expect everybody else to live like Jesus who calls themselves a Christian. So when they don't, we get really disappointed in them and really angry with them. Like, how could they do that? Like, you couldn't? Right? It's uh, something about the log in our own eye and the speck in theirs about which Jesus talked. Sometimes it's difficult to love one another because in the midst of our community we can be very envious of each other. If you read through 1 Corinthians, for instance, and you notice 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, 1 Corinthians 13, well, obviously, it comes in between 12 and 14. But it's not just a numerical coincidence. There's something about the structure of those chapters. 12 and 14 talk about spiritual gifts. Chapter 13 talks about love. And if you understand the church in Corinth, you can find that they're a very prideful group of people. And you get the impression that that they really liked what they had in terms of spiritual gifts. That those who were teachers elevated themselves up above everyone else and everyone envied them. And Paul had to come to them and say, listen, it's not about that. It's about loving each other. That's what's really important here. It's about loving each other. It's not about envying. Psalm 73 is a very interesting psalm. It's a psalm where the psalmist, who is one who believes in God and trusts him and attempts, tries to live righteously, looks at all those people who live unrighteously, who aren't believers, we would say in our context, who aren't believers, and he envies them. Because he says, listen, I've been living righteously and yet I'm sick and poor, they've been living unrighteously, and yet they're healthy and rich. Have I lived my life in vain? Well, that's one kind of envy. But there's also envy in the context of the body of Christ. There's also envy in the context of the church, where a Christian looks at another Christian and says, hey, I'm just as good a Christian as they are, I've lived just as faithful a life to Christ as they have, and yet I have cancer and they don't. Or I'm unemployed and they aren't. 
or I'm single and they're married, or they're married happily and I'm not. Um, that's not autobiographical, by the way. Uh, I'm very happily married. Maybe autobiographical for Karen, but uh, for me, it's, it's uh, I'm I'm a happy guy. But but you see the point. We can look at each other and envy, even in the context of the body of Christ. And that happens in the context of families. Family love is difficult because the expectations are high, because the envy gets very great. And it's even more compounded in the body of Christ because we're so different. Because God has this collection of very different people. They're rich and poor and everybody in between. There's illiterate to educated and everybody in between. There's people who have, have easygoing dispositions. There's people who are wound up as tight as a clock. And he puts us all together. And he says, love each other. And then he gifts us all differently. He puts a prophet with a mercy person. Right? The one's going, hey, that's wrong. The other one's going, saying, oh, but it's not that bad. And we have to get along with each other and to actually affectionately, joyfully love each other in the midst of all that. Now, there's something very nice about a family kind of love, too, because it's, it's really good to be able to find those in the context of the family, find those in the context of the community that you relate with pretty well, to build friendships with. That's very good. We need that in the context of our own rest. But oftentimes, you see, we mask our lack of love by simply hanging out with people who are like us. In fact, churches get developed with people who are just like one another. In fact, the theory of church planting in the late 70s through the 80s and into the 90s, and I hope is now finally shot, but it was the theory of church planting, and it worked for, I think, secular reasons, and that is to, to find a homogeneous group of people, a group of people just like each other, and build a church with just them. But you see, that's not really a church. That's just one demographic, one group of people. People have oftentimes asked me, why doesn't Grace start a college church? And the answer, of course, is because that wouldn't be a church. Because a church with just 18 to 22-year-olds isn't really the whole community. It's just a group of people that, who are like each other in all kinds of ways. The stress to love isn't much at all. That's easy. Throw in a bunch of children and old people, then you have a church, you see. And you have people annoying each other. Right? And you have people who are different from one another, who are then called to put that aside and to really love each other. Churches are now forming on all little nooks and little niceties, like music, for instance. The, the particular kind of music to attract a, gr a group of people who likes just that kind of music. And what we find, I think is that God has a fairly large range of the music he likes, but a very narrow range of hearts that he enjoys. And what he likes are hearts who love each other in the midst of whether you like the music or whether you like the building or whether you like the pastor. <laughs> a little self-serving there. Whether you like... Okay? That's the point. What's God like? He likes people who love him and people who love each other. Now again, like I said, it's good to have restful spots within the body of Christ. 
And I would never encourage somebody to marry somebody that they really don't like just so they can be sanctified better. I'd be a little miserable. Some of you said, I've done that. That's the problem. But, but rather to, to come together as a body of people to really love, to set aside selfishness, self-centeredness and your own ambition to look out for the interests of other people. So important is this, that judgment is based upon how it is that we love Christians. There's an interesting parable of Jesus, Matthew chapter 25, you know this parable. I suspect it's Jesus separating the sheep and the goats. But it's so important because it's surprising to me. You you know the story of the nations of the world come for judgment, Jesus says, and he divides those who are his and those who are not. He calls those who are not goats, those who are his sheep. Now, I would expect, as I'm reading through this parable, that the standard that Jesus would use to divide the sheep and the goats would be whether or not we believed in him and thus whether or not our sins were forgiven. But that's not the standard he uses. But I contend it's not a different judgment than judgment, but he uses a standard so related to having faith in him, it's really one and the same. And what is that standard? The standard is how we treat the least of his brothers. Verse 33, Matthew 25, And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Faith in Jesus, loving one another, simply two sides of the same coin. And so he says, if you love the least of them, you'll love the greatest of them. I mean, it's easy to love, you know, the big shots. He says, I want you to love those who are in prison, who are my people, identify with them. I want you to identify with my people who are poor. I want you to identify with my people who are naked and need clothing. I want you to identify with my people who are hungry and need food. I want you to identify with my people who are sick and need help. He says, now those people give evidence that they belong to me. And so Jesus could base this judgment upon how it is that they treated him. You remember Saul of Tarsus. He's on the road to Damascus gets knocked off his horse. Jesus comes to him and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, if I were Saul, and that isn't true, if I were Saul, I'd have been knocked off my horse too. But a rational, reasonable question, if he could get it out, would have simply been this. I haven't touched you, Jesus. What do you mean? But who had he been touching? Believers. He'd been persecuting Christians. You see, when we touch believers, we touch Jesus. And so, faith in him, love to each other, two sides of the same coin. And we can't get around that. And so when Peter comes to us and says, I want you to love each other from the heart, I want you to love each other sincerely, a brotherly love, he really means it. It's really crucial for us. Now, 
That's all a review. That was just for you, those people who weren't here last week. The point this week is now this. That when I come to this point and I really see the command to love and I really see what it's all about and I really look into the context of my own heart and see how I fail at loving, to see my own selfishness and my own self-centeredness and my own lack of patience and my own lack of, of um, kindness and my own envy of others, my own putting myself first and my interests before the interests of others. And I see all of that before me and I see the, 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 the necessity really of love as a mark of one who's a believer in Jesus and, and honestly saying, I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm desperate to get the answers to these three questions. The first one is, is there any real hope for me? Is there any real hope that this command to love will not fall on my deaf ears? Second command, the second question I need an answer for is, will this command to love other believers costly in a costly and sacrificial way be the bane of my existence? I mean, will it be miserable for me? Will I spend my whole life giving up stuff so you can have and then fighting envy because you got my stuff? Right? Is it going to be the bane of my existence? Is, Is this going to be difficult for me? Is this going to be a good life or not? And then the third one is, is there anything I should be doing to enhance my capability, my capacity to really love? Now, I don't know if you're like me. I don't know if... I spent this week doing what I asked you to do last week, which was to watch your life. And I've been watching my responses in various situations. Now, I must admit that I'm pretty good at this, so my responses haven't been bad, because I'm the only one that knows what's going on on the inside. And the insides have been telling me, Bill, this isn't so good. This love thing is a very difficult thing. And so, so how is it then? Is there any real hope? Will I improve at this? Um, Will this just be miserable? Will this be an unhappy life? Just sacrificing for others. And then is there anything I should be doing? So you know me well enough to know the answer, at least to the first question. It will be yes. There is hope. There's great hope in this context. And Peter gives it to us. And he gives it to us in this one little phrase in verse uh, 23. He says, since you have been born again. Now, that expression born again is one of those Christian expressions that we, on the one hand, get so accustomed to that we don't think about it. On the other hand, socially it gets become, it becomes so trite in our, in our culture that we even, we even hate to mention it because there's so many views about it and, and it's been put down and, and ridiculed in the press and all those kinds of things and, and used in sort of a secular fashion. So if, if, uh, if a baseball player improves his swing, they say he's born again. If, if, uh, if a singer, uh, reinvents themselves and comes out with a new song and it's popular, they say that person, that person's career has been born again. And so the word's just been cheapened, but it's not cheapened in the Bible. Is not cheapened in us. Because when the scripture speaks about being born again, it means something radical has happened in the context of your life. It's been a new birth. It's what Ezekiel talks about when he says that a day is coming when God will take out our heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. And that he will put his spirit within us and cause us to walk in his ways. That's being born again. It's what Jeremiah talks about when he says that God is going to write his law upon our hearts. And it isn't just that he's going to write it on our minds so we know it and have memorized it and can kind of put it forth when asked, but he's writing it on our hearts, meaning the very affection of our life will be this law. 
When God says, I want you to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, we say yes, because our hearts are attuned there. That's exactly what we want to do. That's exactly what we want to hear. When he says, I want you to love your neighbor as yourself, I want you to love each other as I've loved you, says Jesus. And that's written on our heart, on our affections. That means that's who I am. That's the very inclination of my life. So Jeremiah is saying there's a day that's coming when that will happen. That's what it means to be born again. When the very law of God is written on our heart. It's not external, but it's internal. It's not out there, but it's part of us. This very word of God. That's what Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about when he says you can't see or enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. Meaning a radical transformation of the heart, of the soul, of who you are needs to happen for you to be able to perceive what the kingdom of God is and to enter into it. That has to happen first. And he says once that happens, once you've been born again, you see it and you receive the kingdom of God and you say, yes, this is where I want to live. I want to live under the rule and reign of Christ. I want everything that he says to be true. I want to, I want to walk in him. I want to be a citizen of his kingdom. That's what I want to be. It's, it's what the Apostle Paul speaks about, for instance, in, in Ephesians in chapter 4, in verse 22, when he says this. He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. He's saying, he's saying, when you're born again, you're putting off this old dead thing, this thing that's no longer your life. It once was, but it's no longer your life. And he says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, and he uses this language, he says, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That is, there's a new creation that takes place when one is born again. There's something new, and it's so new, so radical, so different, that the Bible calls it being born again, it calls it being a new creation. Second Corinthians 5.17 says that when you're in Christ, you are a new creature. A new creation, something radical has taken place, and that is your heart has changed. Just like Ezekiel says, it's no longer hard and stony, but it's soft and pliable in the very hands of God. Colossians in chapter 3, again Paul says this, he says, don't lie to one another, verse 9, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That is this new self. This new self, I'm echoing here, it's not good. Okay. This new self is being renewed in the image of its creator, in the image of Christ. That's what it means to be born again. Something's happened. Something radical is transformed in such a way that you are being conformed to the image of Christ. Peter puts it this way in Second Peter, not First Peter, but Second Peter, and chapter 1, in verse, beginning with verse 3, he writes this. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellent excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Did you get that? Through all this you may become partakers in the divine nature. By that he does not mean we become divine or we become God, but that we partake of the godliness of God, that as human beings we become 
godly. We partake of this godliness in order to, as he commands us, to love. And thus you see there's great hope because we have been born again. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. Something in the past, I have been crucified with Christ. It means something about me is dead. That's what crucifixion does. Been crucified with Christ. But, nevertheless, I live. So there's a new life here. Yet not I, the old, but Christ who lives in me. I'm now a Christ in me person. I'm now a born again person. The very spirit of Christ lives within me. And that is our hope, you see. Can we obey this command? Yes, with the help of God's spirit who is in me. Because I'm born again. I'm predisposed now, actually, to love. Because of the work of Christ. That's my new self-identity. And we mustn't ever forget that. See, we don't need to live in the context of a spiritual fatalism that says, I'll never be any better at this. We don't have to live with a spiritual fatalism that says, oh, something happened in my past that now keeps me from really following Christ like those really spiritual people do. We don't have to say, because of a present sin, that means I'll forever be stuck right here and never really be able to grow in my faith, never really be able to grow spiritually, never really be able to experience the things of God. I don't know. There's no spiritual fatalism here because I've been born again, and I've been born again, the scripture says in First Peter, through the word of God, which is an imperishable seed. And it's a living and abiding word of God. That is, the word of God is alive. The word of God creates. The word of God brings life. The word of God brings eternal life. You know how the Bible begins. And God said, let there be lights, and there was. Pretty amazing. Why? Because his word brings that which he speaks. He's the only one that gets to do that. I mean, his word is that powerful that when he speaks, it really does happen. Uh, you remember Abraham and Sarah. They were old. And uh, God had said to Abraham and Sarah that she was going to have a child even though she was barren. I didn't quite get it. And God said, is there anything too difficult for me? Now that little word, anything, is a good translation. That's the way it's translated in all our Bibles. But you could also translate that simply as, is any word too difficult for me? It's the same word in Hebrew. Anything, any word. It's any word. When God speaks it, there's nothing too difficult at that point in time. Do you remember Mary? When the angel came to her and said she was going to have a child, even though she was a virgin, she said, be it unto me, what? According to your word. That is, when God speaks a word, it works. The call to worship, Isaiah 55, that I read this morning, the reason I stopped in the middle of it was because we're pretty familiar with that passage if you've been around church a long time. And you know that little phrase in, in, uh, in Isaiah 55, verse 11, that says that God's word will accomplish, uh, will not return into him void, but will accomplish that for which it's purposed. We know that. But then we need to see what he says after that. 
And what he says after that is that you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills shall burst forth before you. There will be shouts of joy. So what you know then for sure is no matter how rotten and unjoyful you feel today, that if you're a believer in Christ, a day will come because God has spoken it. A day will come that there will be joy. It will happen. It can't not. You need to, this is just a little sermonette. You need to tell yourself this all the time. I tell myself this all the time when I'm in a bad mood, or I should at least. I speak to my own soul. It says, but God's word has said that a day is coming when there will be shouts of joy. We need to do that. Now, each of us who's a believer in Christ, who's been born again, knows the power of this word. For instance, in 2 Corinthians in chapter 4, Paul writes this. He says, in their case, which was true in our case too, but in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Then verse 6, he says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The way that we were born again, the way that we became Christians, believers in Christ, is because God spoke. Do you remember when Lazarus was dead? Jesus spoke. What happened? He became alive. When God speaks, our name calls us to himself. It's just like it was in Genesis when he said, let there be light. He looks into our own darkness and says, let there be light. And there's light. And we see. What is it? I shouldn't do this because I didn't think about it. But third verse, Charles Wesley's And Can It Be. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. Ah, my dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rohohos went for horth and for thee. You know that song, okay? But that's it, isn't it? He speaks, and his word is powerful. And so you see, our hope is that we've been born again by this placed within us, this imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God that creates, that brings life. For instance, 1 John and chapter 4, verse 19. I'm almost done. That's a lie. I'm sorry. <laughs> about love. I'm lying to you. All right. We'll be done. 1 John 4. But this is too good. You have to know this. If you don't, you'll die. 1 John 4, 19. Really. We love because he first loved us. Now, since we've been called to love... This doesn't mean that we love because first he gave an example to us of how to love. Examples don't do us that much good. The problem is we need this born again. We need this transformation. See, the love of Jesus, verse 10 says in the same chapter, in this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his love to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, his love did something. 
It wasn't just an example. It wasn't just a model. It wasn't just an illustration. His love did something. His love was a propitiation for our sins, meaning that it paid the price for our sins, meaning that it satisfied the wrath of God against us, meaning that we stood before God pardoned because of his love. Now, since he loved us, that transforms us so that we can love. Verse 7, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, you see. It's this new life. It's this new heart. It's this new identity. It's who we now are because of Christ. We are those who love. Sometimes people sit in my office or call me and talk to me and they say, there's this person that I can never love and this person's another believer. And what I say is, that's not true. You will love them. As a believer in Christ, you will love them because that's who you now are. And God will work in such a way to bring about circumstances and events that you will ultimately love them. You must if you belong to him. It's the flip side of faith. If you believe in him, you will love them. Now, usually after I say that, they don't like me. But I know they will. Eventually. Because they're believers in Christ. That's, that's God at work. He won't let that not happen. He speaks that word. He spoke that word. And that which he speaks will come to fruition. It will happen. So he says, get on with it. And this won't be a burden to us. First John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Complicated way of saying that if you're a believer in Christ, you've been born again, and you will love all those other people who are born again. You will. And then he goes, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. It's not going to be a burden. This is not going to be the bane of my existence. This is not going to be miserable. This is going to be life. And it's not a burden because I live it by faith in him, because he's right and I'm wrong. His way is right and mine is wrong. So I go his way. That's why Peter says, you know, this word is living and enduring. It's, it's like, as he says in the quote out of Isaiah, he says, compare it to flesh. Flesh is like grass. And it's glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Do you understand that no sacrifice that we ever make for the sake of love will be wasted? But everything that we do that isn't of love will wither and fall. So if you're sacrificing to bless, if you're sacrificing to love another, then that will, will not fade. And the glory from that will be throughout all eternity. So it won't be a burden. I don't really understand what's going on. That if I do it and there's no love, or I don't do it because I don't love, then you see, it'll simply fade. Now, I might receive the glory of the world as I boast, as I put myself first, as I promote myself, as I as I lie to get my own way. The world might say, cool, but the glory of that will fade. But you see, if I'm sacrificing and loving and forgiving and being patient and kind and all of that, there'll be no sacrifice. So what should I do? Well, 
First, he says, you've already done it in one sense. Verse 22 says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. He says, listen, when you believe the gospel, you've already experienced this. And as you've begun to live this Christian life, you've already experienced this. In fact, you've tasted, chapter 2, verse 3, you've already tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord. So now he says, get on with it. Put away malice. If you're thinking a thought that hurts another, if you're going to say something that's going to hurt another, if you're going to do something that's going to hurt another, consider the word of God, which commands you to love them. And don't say, well, I can't, because you've been born again, and the seed is imperishable, and it lives in you, and it abides in you, and it's working in you. The burden isn't loving. The burden is not loving. The burden is great. And the only way to get rid of the burden is to confess it as sin and to love. So he says, love. And then he says this. Long for the pure spiritual milk that is long to get the word of God, the pure word of God in you. Meditate upon it. Think upon it. All the time. Continue to remind yourself that you've been born again of an imperishable seed. Continue to remind yourself of of this great word of God that commands you to love. Continue to remind yourself of this new identity, this new self that you are in Christ Jesus, one for whom Christ died, one in whom Christ lives, one in whom the very word of God has transformed and caused you to be a lover. Hear that word all the time. Because Peter says this is the word that's been preached to you. And the word that was preached to them was the gospel. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was that very gospel that says this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved him and gave his son as a propitiation or as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's real love. And he says, think about that all the time. Let that word penetrate that this is Jesus and this is the very love of Christ. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And God is love. And this very one who created us, created us to bear his image, that we might love him and love each other. He said, that's who you now are, one who is being created in that image, one who is being renewed in that image. Thus he says, love. You remember that night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Greater love has no man. In the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the transforming, atoning sacrifice, the forgiveness of sins. This is what changes us, you see. This is what enables us to be adopted into the family of God, that we're forgiven. He has no case against us anymore. That's the very love of God. And then he says, think about that. Now love each other. Now love each other. That very command resonates with our hearts because we're new. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have the very gospel before us. And even though this bread and juice will always remain bread and juice, 
we see in it Christ. Father, we see his love for us and we see his atoning sacrifice that transforms us, enabling us to belong to you and to follow you. And so, Father, we pray that even now as we gaze upon Christ, that this word would sink deep within us, this word of the gospel of the love of Christ for us, and this transformation and this love that we're to have for each other. And, Father, that you would cause us, therefore, to walk in Christ's ways, to love. So, Father, I pray that you'd take this bread and juice and use it in a way that reminds us of him, and transforms us. And this, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table <clears throat> is the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian, Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord, and he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except in his sovereign, loving, compassionate mercy. And those we believe and depend upon Jesus Christ alone as he's offered to us in the gospel, which is freely as the Savior of sinners, the one who's made propitiation, who's made the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And all those who desire to live as becomes a follower of Christ, that is, desires to love as we have been commanded to love as this love has been written upon our hearts. So I invite these two sections to come down this aisle to my left these two down the aisle to my right, take, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you do, you could say a whole lot of things in your own head. You could say, I've been born again. You can say, I've been transformed. You can say, I've been recreated by an imperishable seed through this living and abiding word of God that's in me now that I crave to hear. And that every time it's spoken, I love. So please come, singing as you come. <clears throat> Death of Christ, 
Victory, since Christ has lost its grip on me. 